Hey, just want to get ahead of this as always to remind you that this podcast contains adult language and adult themes. In addition, we'll be covering a wide variety of theologies, mythologies, and folklores today. And in no way is this meant to compare, contrast, belittle, or quantify them in any means. And if I have gotten anything incorrect, I would love to hear about it. Uh, you can contact me with corrections at White Trash Historian on Instagram. Hey, so instead of my normal cold open, um, I need to do a slight correction from last week. Um, Last week, our episode on Medea and Jason, I made a comment about how I don't know any good Jasons, uh, forgetting that my uh, dad has a brother named Jason, um, and he isn't a shitbag, he's just a little misguided, so I figured I just wanted to do a real quick correction on that note. Um, also, in lieu of the main cold open, I would also like to um, put out an extra warning that I will be discussing some Greek mythology today, which will involve issues of sexual assault and rape. And to those who um, that may trigger, I apologize, and I will make sure to put a trigger note warning uh, around these stories when I get to them. Hi everybody, welcome back to another episode of Cavalcade of Tales. As always, I am your host, Drew the Millennial with a History Degree, and uh, today's a little bit of a self-indulgent episode. Um, A lot of you have probably looked at the title being like, Devil Survivor 2, the animation. Drew, what the fuck is that? Um, So a little bit of backstory. Um, Devil Survivor 2 was a game that was originally released for the Nintendo DS, and it was... One of the games that helped not only get me into a Atlas as a game company and the dozens of great games that they've made, including the Persona series, um, but it also, the comparative mythology and folklore of it that it has um, kind of helped shape me into a little bit of the person I'm, I am today. Which sounds ridiculous um, about a turn-based combat game for the Nintendo DS that came out in like 2010, but uh, whatever. Um, it's it. I love it. And in 2014, they made an anime about it, and I was just like, oh hey, I wanted to do another uh, Mythos of episode. Um, the Charmed one got mixed results, but I still wanted to do another one. But I didn't want to violate the SAG after strikes. So I'm like, okay, why don't I do this anime? Because the Screen Actors Guild didn't work on it. It came out in 2014, so it's almost a decade old. So there's no issues of like promoting something that's coming out. I owed it on DVD and probably nobody's heard of this. But it is an excuse for me to cover a shit ton of very different mythological and folkloric stories for everybody. So that that's today's plan. So the way that this show and game works, which there will be massive spoilers for both, is that you play a character who in the anime, um, and how I'll be referring to them is known as Hibiki Kuze. And what happens is, is you are there, and you, your buddy, whose name is Daichi, signs you up for a website known as Nikaya. And what it is, is Nikaya is a website that shows your f- you the faces of your friends when they die. It's like this weird little morbid joke. Um, they th- He thinks nothing of it, and then 
there is a train, a subway collision, and the end of the world starts. And what happens is, is Nakaya allows Hibiki and his various allies he meets to harness the power of demons, which are creatures from his, from mythology, folklore, and history, in order to protect themselves and fight while the apocalypse is going. Because what it is, is that there is a seven days of trials from a group of people called the Septentrions. There is, they are a group of beings sent down by Polaris, the arbiter of the Akashic Record, to decide whether or not humanity deserves to live. So for seven days, they have to fight a Septentrion a day in order to survive. So... The way the show works is it is based off of what is considered the true or canon ending, which involves Hibiki surviving the seven-day trial without choosing a faction and making a world where humans have the right to choose again, and essentially giving humans another shot where they are. Um, in the game itself, um, there are actually three endings. This is just one of them. It's also the hardest one because you start out with like no allies. Um, because in the game, it has a very interesting thing where you have to choose between um, essentially communalism versus egalitarianism. Because on the one hand, you have this massive organization which helps you get through the seven days ran by a person named Yamato Hotsween. And he's just like, I'm. my goal is to survive the seven-day trial. And when I meet with Polaris, I will make a world where the strong are the ones in charge and the weak are the, are subservient to them as things should be. The, the weak deserve the, to serve the strong. In the game, you have the option of siding with him and just going through with his egalitarianism. You also have the option in the game to side with another person whose name is Ronaldo Kikori. And his goal is, like, pure everybody is equal. And everybody gets to do, you know, it's like communal, where people work towards each other for the betterment of society. Um, in the show, they go with the canon ending, which is Hibiki not choosing a side and instead just fighting for humans' right to choose and do what they want, which puts you at odds with both of them. Um, it's a super fun game. You can get it for the original ds or because this is an atlas game what they did is a few years later on the newer console they re-released the game with an additional segment so it's called um freya don't please don't attack cables hon um hold on so the atlas re-released called devil survivor 2 record breaker it came out on the nintendo 3ds and what it is is it gives you a secondary scenario where in addition to the fight with the Septentrions, you have another day of fighting against another group of three enemies. I think it's like, they're called like the Trismegistus, based off of the alchemical group. And, um, but it's been a very long time since I played it, so I'm not 100% on that. And you also get like an additional character, you get like a female Yamato, and you learn this whole thing about like how he doesn't exist in this world because he's in the Akashic Record making sure you're still alive, and it's like this whole thing. But the way the game works is that you go through these various days. To get to the point of how this episode is going to work, I'm going to start and I'm just going to list off each day 
and then I'm going to talk about the various demons. They they call them demons, but the various folkloric and mythological and religious figures in the game or on the show that you meet. I it is not a comprehensive list for two reasons. First, there are some that we have already covered on this podcast, and I'm not going to cover things again. Um, you know, we've already covered a few. We don't need to cover certain figures again. The other time I cut it out is if it's a super generic. Um, for example, there are ogres and berserkers are two that I cut out because there is so many different types of ogres and so many different types of berserkers that I could cover that would fit the descriptions of the characters that it would just, it would be a monumental uh, undertaking. And so I made this a little easier for me. And so, yeah, this is going to be each day I'll do a mini synopsis about each uh, a bunch of various characters and uh, we're just going to get right into it. So the first day is Melancholy Sunday. This is sort of the beginning of the adventure. Um, the first mythological figure I wanted to touch upon was Nikaya. Uh, in this, in the game and show, Nikaya is just the name of the Deadface website. However, Nikaya was an actual mythological figure. She is a Greek mythological figure. So trigger warning here for sexual assault and rape. Freya, please. Sorry about that. Freya decided to walk right over the keyboard because she's annoyed that I'm eating uh, freaking Totino's pizza rolls between takes and that I will let her have any because it's not food for kitties. Okay. Uh, like I was saying, Nikaya, Greek figure, um, trigger warning for rape. Um, I would skip ahead uh, probably about like 25 seconds for me to get through the bulk of the issue. So Nakaya was a hunting naiad of the springs in a Greek colony, and the colony went without a name for a long time. She was the daughter of the river guard Sangarius and the mother goddess Kybele. She was known as the... Uh, Sorry, she wasn't the swan virgin. I can't read my own handwriting. She was a sworn virgin of Artemis and a hunting until Dionysus was very smitten with her. And if we know anything about the Greek gods, that meant he drugged her spring with his ability to make people drunk and then raped her. After giving birth to the nymph Teleti, uh, she tried to kill herself. However, that was uh, incredibly unsuccessful. In order to help cleanse herself... Uh, what she did is when her fellow nymph, Aurora, another one of Dionysus's uh, rape victims, uh, was giving birth, she assisted with the delivery of her child. Dionysus, forgetting the crimes he did against Nikaia, um, named the city and the Greek colony after her, and it is in what is current day Iznik, Turkey. Um, the next is one of the first little enemies you're gonna they run into, uh, right in the train station where the accident occurred. They are kobolds. In the show and and the games and in most Atlas properties, the kobolds take the appearance similar to the kobolds you think of from like D and D, where they're kind of they stand upright. They're kind of like this combination of like dog and lizard, and they're usually carrying a club. However. Kobolds traditionally are Germanic sprites who inhabit either 
three specific zones. The first are home-based spirits who were essentially dressed like peasants. There are mind-dwelling beasts uh, who are like hunched over and so ugly and they can transform into brick. And then ship-dwelling ones who like to dress up like sailors and they smoke pipe. The kobold is traditionally associated with Germanic folklore. However, you can actually trace the kobold back even further to ancient Greek world, the Kabbalai, who were tricksters who tricked um, uh, famous heroes, including Hercules. Um, the element cobalt gets its name from this creature uh, because medieval miners believe that the cobalts in the mine were what were causing the pesky fumes when in actuality cobalt tends to bond really well with arsenic and that's why miners were getting sick um one of the key differences from the show and the game is that they need a reason for your main character to be extremely exceptional and so what they do is in the show hibikikuze is able to summon an incredibly powerful uh contract right away he summons biako so Biyako is the celestial white tiger who spans seven of the 28 Chinese constellations and essentially is one quarter of the night sky in Chinese cosmology. Uh, he is one of the Xinjin, or the four symbols, which are important mythological figures in Taoism, where he is the guardian of the West. He is associated with the Chinese element of metal, the season of autumn, the planet Venus, the color white, the virtue of righteousness and is associated with the wind um in the games and show he is a big fuck off white thunder tiger so he's pretty neat um so our next day is monday of upheaval um in this episode you um well in this batch of episodes on this day you travel to osaka you meet a few more characters in the show they don't all live um, and this is where you start to see some of the moral quandaries that appear a lot, where you wonder, like, Hibiki starts to wonder if everything is worth fighting for when so many lives are being sacrificed for the good of this group. Um, the, so the first batch, I tied these two together because they're usually tied together, but this is Mezuki and Gozuki. Um, they are um, they are from Japanese mythology and traditions. They are the twin wardens of the gates of hell. Uh, they are servants of King Enma, the ruler of hell. And so the way they look is Gozuki is essentially a buff man with an ox head, whereas Mozuki has a horse's head. They are the first demons you meet in hell and are the ones who will chase you down if you try to escape. They are also the chief torturers um of those who commit wicked sins there are figures similar to gozuki and mezuki in hindu mythology which are believed to be inspirations of of these two figures when uh buddhism was brought to japan the next character this one's really interesting um because one of the things that i growing up pagan I never really understood a lot of the weirder stuff about Christianity. I was too busy getting spit at by nuns and threatening to denny fight priests to really like learn some of the more interesting stuff like this. I always knew about Lilith, 
but I never knew about the Lilim. So the Lilim are succubi demons said to be the daughters of Lilith and are traditionally found in Judaism and Kabbalah traditions. So, story time. So I wrote a lot of notes on this because I thought it was super interesting. <laughs> Love me a succubus. We've already covered succubi a couple times. Um, so in some traditions, uh, after Lilith was kicked out of the Garden of Eden for refusing to submit to Adam's will, um, what's really interesting in the way I always like to think about it is like the submitting to Adam's will sometimes is like taken very sexually where it's like Lilith refused to bottom and uh, Adam hate to break it to you bud but uh, sometimes letting the lady on top is more fun Um, and her big thing was like I'm not going to be a bottom just because you think women are inferior we are equals uh, but Christianity and Judaism is a patriarchy so there's a bit of fucking issues with that so she gets kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Uh, seeing Lu- Lilith's rage, uh, Lucifer had the idea where she would have sex with Samael, the angel of death. And he had her brought to the cave he resided in. Uh, the reason he was in this cave and kind of pissed off was because he refused to bow to humanity when God was like, this is man. It is higher than angels, and Samael's like, I don't fucking think so. These are apes with anxiety. I'm the angel of death. I don't fucking think I'm going to bow my head to no fucking ape with anxiety. So what it was is Lilith convinced Samael to have sex with her, saying that their offspring could slay the children of Adam because they were half angel and therefore more powerful. And he liked that idea. So they, their spawn were succubi demons known as Lilum. There are some traditions that say that she continued to sleep with other incredibly high-ranking demons, like Abaddon, and there was a third one, but I didn't write it down. And these were mul- so there were multiple generations of Lilum. Um, so the Lilum were powerful succubi that went about killing infants. And giving Lilith's curse to pregnant mothers, which would give their unborn children disabilities, defects, or stillbirths. The next demon I didn't get as much about, but I had to mention it because it's a very important thing. Um, in this show, when you... Uh, Hibiki, the main character. I always like to think of him as the player character. That's why I often refer to him as like you. Because he is the player character in the game. You first meet up with two people, your friend, uh, Daichi, who you are childhood friends with, and you meet a girl from your school who's in a different class named Ionita, and she's a lot stronger than is believed because she's able to summon this creature known as Kikurihime. So she is a Shinto goddess. I couldn't find a super ton about her. She was mentioned briefly during the myth of Izanagi. Um, if you remember, oh, what episode did I talk about Izanagi and Izanami in? I, gods who die was when I told the story of Izanami um, so I stopped in that myth after Izanagi trapped his wife in the underworld by placing by blocking off Yomi um, apparently continuing on that story uh, Izanagi after condemning his wife into Yomi briefly consulted with Kikurihime 
And although the words she said to him are either lost or erased to history, there are thousands of temples to her all over Japan. And I thought it was just super interesting. Uh, the next episode, uh, set of episodes is Tuesday of Turbulence. In this episode, uh, Hibiki has run off with the faction that is in Nagoya, because this whole thing takes place in Japan. And this is when he starts meeting with Ronaldo and finding out the truth behind the JPs and their plots to be the ones left standing at the end of the trial to make an egalitarianism. Um, so the first thing you meet is uh, Suzaku, who is another demon from the main character. He summons this other one, which is another one of the four Shunjin of Taoism. She is the guardian of the south and associated with the Chinese element of fire, the season of summer, the planet Mars, the color red, the virtue of propriety, and controls heat and flame. An interesting thing about Suzaku is in Feng Shui practices, uh, ancient Japanese capitals had a Suzakumon or a Suzaku gate, which always denoted the southern entrance into a city. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, one thing to note is that although Suzaku is a giant firebird, uh, they are often mistaken with the Chinese phoenix, which is known as the Hoa. Um, I really hope I pronounced that right. I looked up like 10 different pronunciations on how to pronounce it. As it's literally H-O-O, and each of those have a little accent line over them. That's just a flat line. Um, I apologize if I pronounce that correctly. I do not speak any Chinese. I'm bad at speaking English. However, the Suzaku and the uh, Chinese Phoenix, their only real link that I found is that they have a potential folkloric or mythological origin in a Hindu bird deity known as Garuda. Which, all of my Final Fantasy fans immediately had a light bulb go off because Garuda is the name of the wind elemental in the Final Fantasy series. Um, also is the first icon, You um, spoilers for Final Fantasy 16, the first icon powers you steal in that game is from Garuda because you fight her dominant and win. Ugh. I finished Final Fantasy 16 in between the last episode and this one and uh I miss it sometimes, but uh, sometimes we just have to move on. The next demon for Tuesday of Turbulence is a beast known as Orcus. In the show and the games, Orcus is like this big pig demon. And so when I was starting to look into it, I'm like, okay, let's see what this demon pig king is. It turns out Orcus is an aspect of the Roman god of the underworld often conflated with Pluto and Hades, other and other similar underworld deities. Like Hades, the deity of the underworld and the underworld itself doubles. So like you, Hades is the name of the deity and also a name of the underworld. Orcus is the same thing. It could be, it is both the, it is an aspect of Pluto and the name of the realm. Orcus became a lot more prevalent in medieval fairy tales, however, especially in Italy, where they was used as a ogre-like figure for demonic beings who hunger for children's flesh. 
The next character, we're going back to Hindu mythology for this, is Sarasvati, or Saraswati. I've seen it written both ways. So Sarasvati is the Hindu goddess of knowledge who is associated with wisdom, music, art, and learning. She is one of the three main goddesses of Hinduism, and she is the bride to Brahma, who uh, and she helped him create mankind. Um, Brahma is the like all-encompassing like big deity, and that is why in the Hindi caste system, which I didn't do enough research into before I went on this tangent, um, because I'm doing it like in real time. Uh, but the highest caste is known as the Brahmins because it is they who are like controlling everything. In the Vedic literature, uh, the Veda being one of the is actually I believe the oldest still practiced and preached oral and written religious text, which I think is cool as fuck. Um, but in Vedic literature, she is the purifying nature of water and a being of creative energy who promotes artistic creation and romantic love. So, the next character is an incredibly popular one and one that probably a lot of people have heard of but didn't know necessarily certain aspects of it. Um, in During when you're learning about the Tuesday of Turbulence and learning about the different things, you learn that Yamato Hotsween has always been a bit of a weirdo who is incredibly powerful. And one of the ways you figure this out is you see him probably as like a 9 or 10 year old boy summoning his first demon, which is Cerberus. Cerberus, or Kerberus, the Hand of Hades, is the multi-headed hard dog of the gates of the underworld to prevent the dead from leaving. They are the child of Echidna and Typhon. In most descriptions from the ancient Greeks, they have three heads, they breathe fire, they have snakes for a tail, and have a mane that is also, I believe, snakes. Uh, one of their biggest spotlights is uh, appearing in the 12th label of Hercules. So Hercules is being ordered by Eurystheus, the king of Tyrius, to bring Cerberus to him. Um, uh, the TLDR about uh, Hercules' labors is he um, was the bastard son of Poseidon and a woman whose name is I'm drawing a blank on. I think it might be Europa, but I'm probably wrong. Hera being incredibly pissed off that uh, Hercules, or in the Greek Heracles, is a bastard son running around with his, um, her name, uh, drives him to madness. And what he does is he kills his wife Megara and their children while they sleep. Um, in order to receive penance, he is tasked with 12 labors by the king Eurythesis. Eurythesis. Eurythesis, so for the twelfth and final labor, he's like, go bring me the guard dog of hell, Cerberus. He didn't actually care about having Cerberus. And Hercules was like, I know you don't care, and I'm going to do this on the sole ground that you think it's impossible for me to do this, because fuck you. So Hercules, after being shown by Hermes and Athena to uh, the gates of the underworld, uh... He just straight up asks Hades, he's like, hey, can I borrow your dog? And Hades is like, okay, you can borrow Cerberus only if you can tame him without using any weapons. And Hercules is like, bet. 
And so he holds the jog in a chokehold until it lets go. And he's just like, and Hades is like, fair enough. You can borrow him, just bring him back when you're done. And so Hercules brings Cerberus back up. And there's this really famous, like, pottery fresco of this scene where uh, the king is, like, hiding behind, like, a potted plant. And he's like, okay, okay, your labors are done. I can see you're fine. You're totally good. Just get that dog out of my fucking house. Which is also... I don't know, I find that to be incredibly hilarious, in my opinion. Alright, so next, um, this episode's also this batch of demons on Tuesday is a very long one, because you meet, Tuesday is the day you meet the, like, the majority of the rest of the cast. You know, you meet the Nagoya branch, you meet the defectors, you, you learn that Nakaya was actually created by a being known as Alcor who used to believe that Yamato was the key to surviving the seven-day trial of the Septentrions, but now thinks that Hibiki might have a new and better lesson because Alcor created humanity. And he also created the Dayuman summoning program that was embedded in the Nakaya, like, code. Um, so there's a lot of demons in this one because you meet a lot of characters and each character kind of gets associated with a certain demon. So like you have, um, Kikorihime being Eos, you've got Daichi who has poltergeist. I didn't cover poltergeist in this episode because I covered poltergeists previously. Um, look at the episode, uh, Sadie Hawkins Monster Mash pregame where I talk about poltergeists in relation to polygeist uh, in the monster prom segment. Um, so as you're going through, you're meeting all these different characters. So these next two are some of my favorites. Um, and you're going to see why it'll make a lot of sense here. The first one is Case Shift. Um, again, Final Fantasy fans will perk their ears up because Kate Sith is a character in Final Fantasy VII, but this is a different figure. And partially who it was invented. Or its namesake. I also think this one's just going to be a popular one. Just because in my discussions with my various listeners. The Celtic myths tend to go over really well. So Kate Stiff. Is a fairy cat. Uh, which is depicted as a large black cat. With a white tuft of fur on their chest. Um, an important thing to note in the terms of like. Real life cats. If a black cat has a white tuft of fur anywhere, that means it's a male. Pure black cats tend to be female. Anyway. Um, so there are two main things that are like the origin. So either they are just fairy cats. Or there's a common belief that a Kate Sith is a witch in disguise. However, she if a witch transforms into a cat more than nine times she is stuck as a kate Sith. um so i thought it'd be fun to have an um old irish folktale which is known as the king of cats so a man comes home to his wife and his cat whose name is old tom and he tells them he saw nine kate Sith carrying an ornate coffin and they said on to him tell tom tildrum that Tim Toldrum is dead. When he sold this to his wife and cat, and he's like, isn't this fucking weird? His cat hopped up on back legs, and exclaiming, well, then I am the king of cats, and he flew up the chimney, never to be seen again. <laughs> and I thought that was cute, and uh, 
my I don't have a black cat, but my brother has a black cat, and I love her to bits. Uh, she's a bit of a mean bitch, but I love her. Um, the other, the last um, demon for this day is Neko Shogun, which is literally just a cat dressed up in a little like Shogun Japanese armor, and it's cute as hell. Um, and it often runs up like in the Atlas games. Neko Shogun is sometimes so hard to get because you have, it's usually like a special fusion where you have to have like four different demons that you fuse together in a special way in order to get Neko Shogun and it's like, ugh, just give me the cool cats. I don't want to have to fight with shit. But Neko Shogun is a divine general in the image of a cat based off of a famous Chinese general who conquered Vietnam named Mao Sheng Shu. For his bravery, he was deified and many little temples were made to him. However, the pronunciation of his name, Mao, is similar to the Chinese word for cat. So the temples were actually misnamed as temples to general cat. And so oftentimes depictions of the general cat deity is of a, is Neko Shogun. Um, and I think that is the cutest fucking shit. Oh, I love it so much. Their little faces. So oh, fuck, I'm such a cat. Per- I'm sorry if you're a dog person. Like cats are cats are great. Like, I'm sorry. I I couldn't. Have, I'm gonna go on a mini tangent here. It's not that I hate dogs. It's that I can't deal with the upkeep. Um, there's also a smidgen of fear due to some traumatic experiences in my formative years that we don't need to get into. But in terms of like, it's just like, I couldn't, I can't handle the constant neediness. You want to know what, it's like, you want to talk about the great thing about cats. You know what Freya is doing right now? I guarantee you, I can't see her, but she is probably sleeping on the edge of my bed, pissed off that I'm not paying attention to her, even though she's not even in the same room as me. And I love that shit. I love a pet who comes to you when she's ready for your attention. And this has been Drew's Cat Corner. Okay, so, we're moving on. The next day is Wednesday of Transformation. So, in this one, you have three separate squads of people set up. So what it is, is you, uh, Hibiki, and his two friends go to Osaka... Um, where you find out that one of the people you met in Osaka, who is a traditional dancer, uh, Hibiki thought she died on the second day, but it turns out she's okay, and it's a very, you know, heartwarming moment, and I tear up a little bit each time. Um, and then you also have the Nagoya defectors and Yamato in in Tokyo, and what they have to do is that there is a Septentrion attacking all three cities at once, and they have to all kill it at the same time. It's a very interesting episode, and um, because it's one of the ways that the show really differs from the game in order to create a proper narrative structure that works well. Because you, one of the things you have to understand is like an anime is never going to be like a true faithful adaptation to the games. Like I've you know I I watched and I own the Persona Four animation, and that's super different than the game. Granted, I'm playing Golden right now, so like obviously it's going to be different. Like I just I. 
when I was supposed to be recording this episode Sunday, instead I got hella drunk on rum and I watched the Nier Automata anime because Nier Automata is my favorite video game of all time and they do change like a couple tiny things in that, but God, oh my God, it is such a faithful adaptation and the music is the same and it's just, oh, fuck, it's so good. Um, but a spoiler then, um, the big thing that happens in this that isn't the same is that in the original, in the game, the defectors of the Nagoya branch are the ones who you join up with if you want to do the everybody is equal ending in the show uh most of them die on Wednesday so the first demon I don't think there's a lot of demons on Wednesday actually um let me just double check there are yeah I only have one so the one main new demon you meet on Wednesday is Lorelei um, because one of the the one of the survivors of Nagoya, uh, she loves the that part of the city so much, and when the Septentrion destroys the concert hall that she used to play piano with with her dad, she uh, melts down and then summons an extremely powerful demon. So Lorelai is a Germanic water spirit who is a siren of unparalleled beauty who sits upon a rock at the end of the river Rhine, who tricks sailors to their death. Um, the Rhine River, to put people in perspective, is the one of the natural borders of France and Germany, where it's just the Rhine River. It is said that when she was human, her lover was so unfaithful to her that she threw herself into the river, becoming a siren. Um, in um, other types of Germanic and Slavic folklore, she becomes a Rusalka that way. Um... Which, another tiny tangent, there is a Magic the Gathering card. It is a red card for one red mana called Scorched Rasalka. And it drives me insane because Rasalkas are water spirits. They wouldn't be on fire. Um, so an interesting thing about Lorelei is there's a poem written in 1801 by Clemens Bentonato. And there is a mo moment where a woman called Lorelei is accused of bewitching men to their deaths and is on her way to a convent but falls to her death off an echoing rock in the Rhine. So the myth of Lorelei comes about because there is actually this massive rock near the end of the Rhine. And what it is, is the way the waterfall comes by and the water rushes through the rock, it makes a peculiar sound. And so a lot of people are like, mm, the water's making a weird ass sound. And when people go investigate, they drown because humans are idiots. It's probably a siren. Um, a fun little side anecdote, because that's all this show is at the end of the day sometimes. Um, it, there is a, show, a series I love. It's a romantic comedy um, known as Monthly Girls Nozaki-kun. And it's this little series. They have There's an anime for it too, but there's a, there's a lot more books. And there's a my favorite character is a character named Yuzuki Seo, and she's the best friend of the main character who's in love with a manga artist and he, she finds out that her that and it's like the hijinks of her trying to get noticed by this guy who draws romantic comedies for a living yet doesn't realize that the girl who is now helping him is in love with him because he's just dense and stupid and so she has a best friend, and her name is Yuzuki Seo, and she is a fucking 
nightmare person in like in reality like she'd probably be a terrible she'd be a very hard person to be friends with it but i love her to bits and i know we'd be friends because she has a very strong overbearing personality and she likes to beat up the boys during playing sports and she has this freshman who's like a year below her wrapped around her finger and she has a crush on him but she's awkward and doesn't know how to tell him really that well um, but the thing is, is even though she has this rough, abrasive personality, she's known as the Lorelei of the Glee Club because she has a beautiful singing voice and can do classical music really well. And she is my favorite character. I highly recommend reading it. There are currently 13 volumes and there might be more published. I know COVID messed up, you know, manga production in terms of buying volumes. So I only buy them. But yeah, um... I am a Seo Waka fan. The downside I find to doing these late night recordings uh, last minute is um, I my mind tends to wander more at night, I found. So there's going to be a lot more tangents. And uh, I hope you guys like tangents. You know what else I hope you like? Ads. Uh, this is an ad for the Patreon. Hi. Um, this podcast doesn't have ads yet. It's going to. I meant to do it this week, and then I got distracted, and then I spent all my money on magic cards because I'm a gremlin with no impulse control. Um, and if you want to help support my terrible habits, uh, you can do so at patreon.com slash cavalcadotales. Uh, for $5 a month, you can get early ad-free access to episodes. Uh, you get to help join and create a thriving Discord community. And you also have access to the We Don't Talk About Book Club book club, where every month we read a new book um, that has to do with histor- his- history history, and folklore. As a reminder, this month's book is The Witch and the Czar by Olesa Salonova Gilmore uh, about Baba Yaga and the uh, reign of Ivan the Terrible. I actually started reading it this weekend when I was watching my siblings. Um, I'm already hooked and I'm only about two chapters in. And so, um, yeah, if you want to know what I think about the book and other various little things, join the Patreon at patreon.com slash cavalcadeoftales. And now back to the episode already in progress. So the next day is Thursday. This is Thursday of shock. And the main thing about this episode is like... During the series, you have uh, Hibiki, who is incredibly getting pissed off at Yamato about constantly having to send other people to fight battles when he is powerful enough. He's got these powerful demons. And that people keep dying. So he's just like, hey, Yamato's like, shut up, bitch. You're not even needed today. Um, So during, uh, in the Wednesday episode, before they start, um, doing all the things they run a medical test on everybody just to make sure that everybody's feeling okay and to test for certain things that you find out in the next few days so one of the things they find out is that the plan for thursday is that the uh septentrion is located in the stratosphere so in order to defeat the septentrion they're going to have two of the characters, the person from Osaka, the traditional dancer from Osaka, who you're happy to find out is alive, and the song, the songstress from Nagoya. They're going to summon two Hindu deities. They're going to summon Shiva and Kama. And what's going to happen is they're going to use Kama as bait to have Shiva shoot the Septentrion out of the sky. However, the downside is, is when doing so... Uh, the Septentrion will fall from the sky and crush multiple cities. 
So, the so the first one I'm going to cover is Shiva. Shiva is the Hindu god who governs destruction, time, master of poison and medicine, patron of yoga, meditation, and the arts. Um, I'm going to also say right off the bat that uh, in these further days, we're getting a lot higher and more like grandstanding members of various mythologies and, pa- and pantheons. And these are not like full like I these are very tertiary surface level examinations um I which means I may cover some of these guys or girls or non-gender conforming deities in future episodes in different ways um so like I'm not giving like a full thing on Shiva but um there is a lot of there is plenty more to learn Shiva has many aspects, both uh, benevolent and fearsome. Uh, in peace times, he lives a yogi lifestyle on Mount Kalistai, and in a home with his wife Parvati and their two children Ganesha and Kartikya. When angered, he's fighting demons and destroying shit. Iconography: Shiva is often has blue skin, forearms, and has the serpent king Vasuki around his neck. The adorning crescent moon and the holy river Ganja flowing from his matted hair. He has a third eye in his forehead. It is depicted closed, and he usually has his trident weapon known as Trishula. Um, I believe Shiva is in the story of Kali Ma when she goes on her rampage killing demons. In order to stop her fury, I believe it's Shiva who throws himself on her under her feet so that when she steps on him and realizes what she's done, it brings her back to clarity and it stops her rampage. But that might not be Shiva, that might be a different god. So the other deity is known as Karna, or Karma. Kama. Wow, I messed that up. It's Kama. Karna is a figure in Hindu mythology, but that is a story for a different episode. So I'm not touching upon that at all. So Kama, also known as Kama Deva, is the god of erotic love, desire, and pleasure. Often depicted as a handsome young man, decked out in ornaments and flowers, and he is often armed with a sugarcane bow, shooting arrows of flowers. His most famous legend is the one where he fucks with Shiva. So the way it works is uh, people want Shiva to mate with Parvati because it is said that the child of Shiva and Parvati will be able to defeat a demon that is plaguing the countryside. So Kama, being the god of eroticism and, like, you know, essentially being the god who could make them fuck, is tasked with breaking Shiva's meditation. So he can meet Parvati and, you know, they can get to boning. In order to awaken Shiva, Kama shoots him with a flower arrow. This incredibly pisses Shiva off, to the point where he opens his third eye, which vaporizes Kama to ash. After doing so, he meets with Parvati, and he is immediately smitten. And he is, like, okay with taking her as a bride, and he offers her one boon in order to praise her for her chastity 
she asks him to revive Kama. And he's like, fine. He cannot exist corporeally. He can be disembodied and fly around being part of the wind with his mate. Um, but he, you know, he's not off the hook because he shot me while I was trying to meditate. So, and that's pretty much all for that one. So the next day is Friday. It's the Friday of farewells. So, at well, okay, before, like, even though the next episode is Friday, at the end of Thursday, is reveal, that's when Yamato reveals, he's like, hey, when this is all over, when the seven days trial is up with the Septentrians, we get to meet Polaris and we decide how the world's going to be. He's like, and my plan is to make it an egalitarianism. And if you can't handle that, then you better survive these days so you can try to fight me to stop me. Because only one person can meet with Polaris to decide how the world is going to be made. This is slightly different in the, than the games. Because in the games, the way it worked is you had to have a faction. Because whoever spoke to Polaris had to have the will of mankind. Um, and then, so, you know, everybody's, like, excited because they're like, if we survive the seven days, we can have the world back. And then it is revealed that our friend Nita, Io Nita, who is, we, is, there's a, it's heavily implied that she's in love with you. Yeah, Hibiki is told that in order to defeat the next Septentrian, she has to die. And she has to offer herself as a vessel because she is considered the perfect vessel for the our next demon, who is another Celtic mythology. This is Lou. So Lou is an Irish god of justice, war, kinship, craftsmanship, skills, trade, and harvests. He is portrayed often as a warrior, a king, and a master craftsman. He is associated with the planet Mercury. And fans of this podcast are very familiar with his son, uh, a Irish hero who used a spear known as Cullen. So, Lou was a very important knight. He joined the High Court of Gods when he went to Tuatha de Danann, but he was refused entry until he is shown that he has a skill that is worthy of King Nuanda. He offers his skill services as either a right, a smith, a champion, a swordsman, a harpist, a hero, a poet, a historian, a sorcerer, and a craftsman. However, each time he has, he says a different job, the guy at the door is like, look, we've already got one of those, we don't need another one. So he only gains entrance into the court when he's like, look, I have all of these skills. Yes, you already have someone who has mastered one of these skills, but do you have a jack of all trades, as you will? And he's like, oh, no, okay. So Lou fights and frees this court of the gods under the oppression of the storm god Balor, who is actually his uh, grandfather, and the Formian army. Lou had become the leader of this court after the death of Nuada, and he slayed Baldor and makes peace with the Formanians in return for them to teach agriculture to the like to the Irish instead of you know them being murdered uh, Lou was killed by the three sons of Kermay okay 
I touched upon this when I was talking to people when I was doing the research for this. So the person's name is probably Kermay because there wasn't a lot of soft C's in older languages. And his name is C-E-R-M-A-I-T. So it's probably Kermay. My brain only wants to read it as Kermit. So it's like, yeah, he was uh, his son. He was killed by the three sons of Kermit after he killed Kermit for having an affair with one of his wives, whose name is Buak. Kermit's sons speared Lou through his feet and then had drowned him in the Loch Luberta. His name is probably Kermit, but every fiber of my being thinks his name is Kermit. So in the episode, Lou takes over Ionita's body and you have to essentially fight Lou so that your friend doesn't get completely destroyed by the possession. So her mind stays intact. And as there's this beautiful scene about how Hibiki is going to be like, I'm going to protect you and we're going to see the end of this. And he uses a power known as the Dragon Stream, which originally was only being able to be used by Yamato. And Yamato's like, this is why you were meant to be to fight by my side, because we are the same. And he's like, we're not the fucking same. Eat shit. So, we move on to Saturday of Variances. This is the day of the last Septentrion. And shit hits the van quickly, because this Septentrion essentially is a is in four parts and each part is a bit of a septentrion from a previous day so it has the combined might of a bunch of septentrions and there are a lot of they pull out all the stops with a bunch of demons in order to stop this septentrion and to finish polaris's trial the first is Pallas athena this is the greco-roman goddess of wisdom and warfare and handicrafts in Hesiod's Theogony, Zeus swallows his cordsert Metis in order to hide her from Hera, and she gives birth to Athena inside of Zeus, and in order to escape, Athena crawls through his body and comes out of Zeus's head. In other traditions, Zeus has Athena through Parthenogenesis, just to spite Hera to show he doesn't need a woman to make a new god. Um, she is... The patroness, that's what I wrote. Wow, I have a, my own handwriting sometimes I can't even read. So she helps various heroes such as Hercules, Perseus, Bellerophon. She helps um, Jason, but like Jason's not really a hero as we established in the last episode. Um, it's just, but she tends to help heroes or fake heroes in their quests. Um... Another famous myth is she is one of the trio of goddesses that is the impetus for the Trojan War. Um, when Eris, so tiny quick thing on the beginning of the Trojan War before I cover something different in a different episode probably about it. But the beginning of the Trojan War was the marriage of Achilles' parents. And what happens is, is that the goddess of strife, Eris, is not invited. So what she does is she takes a golden apple, writes to the fairest, and throws it into the wedding, and it lands at the feet of three goddesses, Hera, Aphrodite, and Athena. I just gotta say, I 
would love to have that kind of power to just throw a piece of fruit and start one of the biggest wars in human history like just the raw chaotic energy of that like fucking goals i would love that and athena was one of the people who vied for the apple and as we all know aphrodite gave the best prize which was a married woman and sure it went downhill from there one of the things about athena is she's not the best ally to women in stories which is rough because she is a one of the few goddesses in a patriarchal society however she is the one for example who transformed medusa into a gorgon after she was raped in her temple by poseidon and transformed Arachne into the first spider after Arachne bait her in a weaving contest. So, she's not exactly a girl's girl. Uh, the next being is Trumpeter. Uh, so this is a very interesting one, and I learned a bunch again off of this one because this is, goes into Christian theology and the theosophy no theosophy is a completely different thing theosophy is the madame blavatsky and like aryans and white people being the best at everything because they're descended from like aliens or something and that was uh, some crazy shit that led to nazis anyway trumpeter is based off the angels in the book of revelations in the new testament it is said that seven angels will sound seven trumpets, and each trumpet signals a different plague or disaster that leads to the apocalypse. The first trumpet will hail the fire that will burn the trees and the grass. The second trumpet, a burning mountain of fire, will turn the seas to blood. The third, a star called Wormwood, will poison the rivers and lakes. The fourth trumpet will blot out a third of the light from the sun and other celestial beings. Everything was in, like, thirds. The fifth trumpet is the first of the three woes of mankind, where a large star will open a pit to hell, where the servants of Abaddon will torment those who don't have the seal of God on their forehead. The sixth trumpet signals the four horsemen of the apocalypse, who will wipe out a third of all life. And then the final trumpet signals the ascension of the holy and the condemnation of all for the rest of God. Which seems like a lot. And is one of those things that, like, I never knew. And it's one of those, like, things that I don't, that, like, at growing up pagan, I never knew about. Like, I had known about, like, the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse and, like, the trumpet being sounded. I didn't know there were seven. That's excessive. <laughs> you can't be like, toot, toot, the world's fucking over. Like, goddamn. Um, but, yeah. The last demon i'll talk about for this day is known as so this one's a bit i have to do a bit of context for the demon itself is black frost however black frost is a amalgamation of multiple frosts in the game so for the purposes of this one i'm covering the sprite jack frost um instead of black frost because the way it works in atlas games is you have jack frost you have pyro jack which is like jack-o'-lanterns and he's like a pumpkin head you have king frost who is like the king of the jack frosts 
And then usually you have to fuse those three together or you have to fuse a bunch together specially in order to make Black Frost, which is like this massive amalgamation of Jack Frost. But Jack Frost is the personification of frost, ice, snow, sleet, and winter, who is a younger variant of Old Man Winter. Uh, in the 19th century, he became more of a sprite-like figure who enjoys causing mischief. Um, and we're not talking about that weird 1990s film where the kid's dad dies in a snowplow accident and becomes a snowman in order to talk to his son. So we now reach the final day of the show and the end of the series, which is known as the Sunday of Realization. A week has passed. And the way this works is this is the final showdown between Hibiki and Yamato for who will speak to Polaris and change the fate of the world. In this episode is the first time they talk about a major mechanic in the game, which is known as demon summoning, or demon fusion, where you fuse two demons together to make more powerful demons. And there's a whole fusion sequence that Hibiki does, because what happens is like Hibiki shows that you know it's companionship and togetherness that makes humans great. And he gets all the demons of his dead friends and is able to do a massive fusion spread in order to make the best demon in the game. So what I did is I chose my favorite demon from the fusion Fred and then the two strong demons that him and Yamato fight against in the finale. So my favorite demon from the spread is a demon I always, like every time I play an Atlas game, I make sure to build and have ready for the final battle regardless of what it is. And that is Metatron. Metatron is considered the greatest of all angels. He briefly appears in the Talmud, which is the Jewish uh, sacred text. A lot of people like to call it the Jewish Bible, and I think that's a bit reductive because the Talmud came first. And there are also bits of the Talmud that are in the Bible because it's part of the Old Testament. He's a lot bigger figure in Kabbalah, though. He is an archangel who is the angel of presence and the celestial scribe recording the sins of humanity and guards the secrets of heaven. He also acts as the mediator between God and men and is being colloquially called the voice of God. Metatron is also sometimes believed to be the um, angel that is created when Enoch ascends to heaven. Um, and finally, the most important thing. Uh, Metatron is uh, played by Alan Rickman in the 1999 religious fantasy movie Dogma. We brought it back. Um, it is very funny. He does a great job in that because God isn't supposed to speak because it, you know, you're not supposed to be able to perceive God, kind of like an eldritch being kind of thing. Uh, but there's an interesting scene where he's talking to the woman who has to get like do weird things. And she, like, tries to kick him in the balls, and, like, he pulls his pants down, and it shows that angels have no genitals. Uh, yeah, watch Dogma. <laughs> it's a good movie. Selma Hayek's in it, and Matt Damon and his friend that's in all the movies with Matt Damon, whose name I can't ever remember, is in it. Yeah, it's a good film. So, at in the final climactic fight of this thing, you have Yamato, who is... Uh, controlling the demon Satan in order to try to win his chance to speak to Polaris. So Satan first appearing in the Talmud as Ha-Satan who is a heavenly prosecutor subordinate to God 
who tests people's faith. Like a la Book of Job, you remember, um, there's the whole thing where he's like, he meets with uh, God and is like, Job only is faithful to you because you've given him everything. And God's like, fucking bet. And he makes Job miserable, kills all his family, his livestock, his friends, gives him sores and sickness, and fucking Job still praises his name. Important thing to note, Job, I believe, is where the phrase job comes from, and how jobs are soul-sucking things that make your life miserable, and only through the grace of God can you make enough money where you'll never have to work again. Um, It is an interesting thing, because you can actually trace the changes in satan so when judaism came in contact with zoroastrianism that's when satan became more of an antagonistic figure to god also known as yahweh and so what happens is satan uh so god grants satan dominion over fallen angels and their offspring in order to tempt and test humanity and their faith in god Um, In Christianity, Satan is believed to be the serpent who tempted Eve in the Garden of Eden. He later appears as a red dragon who is smote by Michael the Archangel, who is then bound and cast into the Lake of Fire. Um, It is sometimes, it is often believed in Christianity that he, he is literally like thrown through the earth. And in Dante's Inferno, the way it works is the impact crater from Satan being thrown to hell is like that cone and that's how the cir- the layers of hell work. And that's how it is structured in the Divine Comedy, which is kind of neat. Since I was talking about um, all the, like, Abrahamic religions, I figured I'd throw in. Uh, in Islam, Satan is known as Iblis. And he was cast from heaven after refusing to bow to Adam, claiming that Adam could not be better than him because Adam was made of clay while Iblis was made of fire. He then became a kafir, which is an ungrateful disbeliever, whose sole mission was to lead man astray. Um, In the Islamic tradition, Allah allows Iblis to try to lead man astray because it is believed that Allah is power, is so strong that Iblis will not be able to tempt those who are righteous enough to believe in Allah. So our final character and mythological figure is who Hibiki brings to the final battle after the massive uh, like demon fusion, and that is Lucifer. Uh, it's really funny because I write my notes in pencil, and I'm just like going through as I'm reading them. And uh, it's really interesting because uh, I can see that I either changed pencils or sharpened them right as I started this one. So it's written a lot sharper. Uh, So Lucifer. So this is a bit interesting. So Lucifer is the light bringer in Latin, and it was the name of the planet Venus, and it was actually a figure in Roman mythology being personified as a man carrying a torch, said to be, quote, the fabled son of Aurora and a harbinger of the dawn. So, with Lucifer, the whole concept of a fallen angel or something fallen from grace is often associated with the planet Venus, and that's how it got associated with Lucifer. Um, for example, there's the Sumerian goddess Inanna, or the Babylonian Ishtar, who fell into the underworld due to her hubris and wanting to control multiple realms. 
uh, in Isaiah 4, 12, 14, 12, the Babylonian Kings talks about the falling of the morning star, which is claiming that Lucifer as the name of Satan before his fall back from when he was an angel. So this is kind of one of the first like tie-ins where Lucifer becomes associated with Satan and gets tied in as kind of this, okay, so it's like it's Satan now, but back before Satan was, you know, this corrupting force, he was the archangel Lucifer who was beautiful and loved by God. One of my favorite anecdotes about like depictions of Lucifer pre-fall is that their church commissioned a statue from a guy and they were just like, the statue is too hot and horny. So they hired his brother to make a new statue and the newer statue was hotter and hornier than the previous one. And yeah, so that's the, those are the main demons in the story of the show. Once it's incredibly, the way it's done is incredibly beautiful because like Hibiki is just trying to show Yamato that he, no man is an island. And in the final climactic battle, when they're like rushing at each other, the very last thing before the screen goes white and it changes everything is that Lucifer hugs Satan. And it's like really this really touching and beautiful touch. Um, and then um, Hibiki says something up and it's like it would be him talking to Polaris and humans get to restart and you get to see everybody living their happy lives again and uh, Hibiki remembers what happens in the seven days after meeting with Nita and Daichi in the same train station that the show began with and he runs to see if he can find Yamato to see if Yamato has changed and he does and the whole thing ends in a happy and it's nice and this has been my incredibly self-indulgent episode and that is this week's episode Um, I hope you guys liked the various myths and legends we touched upon today we really touched a wide variety and uh, this one was a bit more self-indulgent, but I uh, hope you guys will allow some self-indulgence every now and again. Um, I got to learn a lot of various different stories. Like, I got to learn the, you know, Neko Shogun's truth. I got learned a lot about Christian theology. And uh, yeah, it was really fun. Um, I have one of two plans for next week, and I won't say what they are in case I try to figure out which one is which and which I will do next week. But yeah, if you want to get in contact about things you heard and listened to this week, uh, you can contact me at White Trash Historian on Instagram or TikTok. And always, you can support the podcast fiduciarily uh, by going to patreon.com slash cavalcadertales. I hope you guys liked it, and I'll talk to you all next week. Bye!